I was listening to Bishop T.D. Jakes a couple of weeks ago, and he gave me an analogy that I want to use today because I believe it applies perfectly to this passage of Scripture. Bishop Jakes said, you must understand the difference between arithmetic and algebra. Arithmetic is a problem looking for an answer. Algebra is an answer looking for a problem. Arithmetic is 2 plus 2 looking for 4. But algebra is X looking for negative B plus or minus the square root of B <laughs> AC divided by 2A. Right? In algebra, you start with the answer and you look for the problem. In arithmetic, you start with the problem and look for the, the answer. And Bishop Jake said, some of you are not finding your destiny because you think you're a problem looking for an answer, when in fact you're an answer looking for a problem. I thought, man, that just, Bishop Jakes just preached me under the table, preached me under the chair. I got slain in the spirit. And as I read through this passage and as I meditated on this passage, it became clear that in, in, the, in this passage of Scripture that we read from Acts chapter 9, verse 32, all the way through 1048, all the way through the end of chapter 10, God uses Peter in marvelous ways because he presents himself not as a problem looking for an answer, but as an answer looking for a problem. He presents himself before the Lord not as a collection of problems. When he comes before the Lord, he doesn't come to say, Lord, here's my problems. Please give me solutions. He doesn't come with a list of all the things that he wants God to fix and all the things he wants God to heal and all the stuff he wants God to break and all the stuff that's gone wrong that he wants God to make right. Instead, he comes and says, Lord, you've made me an answer. Show me the problem that you want to apply me to. And that's why God is able to use Peter in marvelous ways. And God can use you in marvelous ways if you would present yourself to him not as a problem looking for an answer, but as an answer looking for a problem. Now the key is Peter, throughout the book of Acts, begins to discern by the power of the Holy Spirit the key moments in which God has called him to be an answer. The, the concept is that Peter is not an answer to every problem. And you are not an answer to every problem. Peter is not healing for every sickness. And you are not healing for every sickness. You are not called to give money to every homeless person you meet. But there are some homeless people that you'll meet that God is asking you to give money to. You are not to encourage everyone who's discouraged, but you're called to encourage someone who's discouraged. You are an answer to specific problems. You are not an answer to every problem. And if you try to be the answer to every problem, you're going to run yourself into the ground and you're going to kill yourself early trying to be an answer to every problem. That's called a Messiah complex. And you don't have to die on the cross. Somebody's already been there. And so Peter, throughout the book of Acts, he discovers in Acts chapter 3, as he's walking up through the gate beautiful to go to the temple to pray, that he's the answer to the problem of this man who had been lame from his mother's womb. And he senses it in the spirit. God's called me to be an answer. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. 
In Acts chapter 7, or Acts chapter, Acts chapter 7, when he heard, uh, Acts chapter 8, when he heard the gospel had reached Samaria, but none of them had received the Holy Spirit, suddenly he discerned within himself the anointing to be the answer for that problem. So he and John packed their bags and went all the way down to Samaria and started laying hands on folks, and they started receiving the Holy Spirit. Right, And here in this passage of Scripture, Peter begins to sense that God's called him to be an answer. So he starts going city to city, preaching the gospel. And, and in each place he goes, there are specific moments and specific situations in which God's called him to be an answer. We found here in Acts 9.32 that there was this man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and bedridden. And Peter, when he heard about Aeneas, realized, God has called me to be an answer to this man. And so he walked into the room and he said, Aeneas, the Lord Jesus Christ makes you whole. Stand up and take up your bed. And boom, the anointing of the Holy Spirit fell and the man was completely healed and he stood up and took his bed. It didn't mean that everybody that Peter prayed for was healed, but this man was healed. Why? Because God had anointed Peter at this moment to be the answer to this man's sickness. It takes discernment to know in this situation, God's called me to be an answer. In this situation, God's called me to hold my peace. Jesus walked into the pools of Bethesda in John chapter 4, and he only healed one person. Why? Because that was the one person that God had made him the answer for that day. There was a, an evangelist, by the, actually a pastor by the name of Peter Youngren, and uh, Carl Hargestam told me a lot about him. He said, I've never met anyone with an apostolic anointing as strong as Peter Youngren. He says, Peter and I, he said, I traveled with Peter. Peter was kind of one of the earlier mentors for Carl Hargestam. And if you know Carl Hargestam, he ministers, he, has, he does these huge crusades in Africa, and especially in places like Ethiopia where there's multitudes of sick people that are healed and blind eyes open and deaf ears unstopped. And we actually got to go to Ethiopia and do a few crusades with them, and we saw it with our own eyes. I mean, it's, it's crazy what God does in those settings. But, but uh, Carl was telling me that when he was young, Peter Youngren kind of took him under his wing and said, let's go to, to Africa together. They went to some country in Africa that was predominantly Muslim. And, P, and Carl said, I never saw anything like it. When we left the hotel, he said, as you were driving through the city, I said, I'm just sitting next to Peter, but I could feel the atmosphere in the city shifting around this man. as he's, he's, We're just driving in the taxi. And all of a sudden, Peter said to the taxi driver, stop right now. And the guy stopped, and Peter burst out of the car, and there was a lame man on the side of the road. And he said, stand up and walk in Jesus' name. And the man jumped up and was completely healed. And then he jumped back in the taxi and said, let's go. <laughs> they got to the city, the town where they were going to have the crusade, and they went to the hotel, and there was a family staying in the room next to theirs. And the family had a brother or a father, a family member who was completely emaciated, practically at the point of death, right at death's door, and he could not move. He was lying on a mat on the floor, and he could not move. He could not stand. He could not lift a hand. And when they saw Peter, they begged him, would you please come pray for our brother? He completely ignored them. He said, not now. And he walked right around them and went to their room. And when he came out of the room later that night, they said, would you please pray for our brother? He said, not now, and walked right around them. And Carl kept thinking to himself, why is this man so heartless? that he won't pray for this man. Carl said, I even snuck in and prayed for the guy a couple times, and nothing happened because Peter was just so heartless. Sorry. Peter said, <laughs> I don't know what that was, but <laughs> forgive me if you saw that. Peter, <laughs> Peter, I'm speaking in crumbs up here. <laughs> Got the remnant of old donuts from this, uh, <laughs> this morning. <clears throat> But on the third day of the crusade in the morning when Carl was preaching the morning session, the Lord spoke to Peter Youngren and said, go 
to the mosque in the city and stand on the steps of the mosque and preach the gospel. Now that's like death. That's like God telling you, go kill yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? But Peter was so crazy, he got excited by that. And he grabbed an interpreter, a translator, didn't tell him where they were going. He said, come with me. I said, where we're going? You'll see. <laughs> and they went to the mosque and he stood on the steps and the translator stood next to him and he starts preaching the gospel. And an angry crowd gathers around him and starts spitting on him. And they're spitting all over him. But the more they spat, the more he preached the gospel. Then they started pelting him with rocks. And the more they pelted him, the more he preached the gospel. And then they started getting bigger stones to stone him to death. And the more they threw the stones, the more he preached the gospel. And he thought to himself, I'm going to be martyred for Christ today. And he started to get excited, thinking that he would have an opportunity to give his life for the gospel. And suddenly, a hand grabbed him and his interpreter and pulled him into a compound and locked the gate behind him and saved his life. And he said he sat down with that man, and, and the man said, what are you doing out here? Are you guys crazy? And he said, yes, we're crazy. We're crazy for Jesus. And he shared the gospel with that man and led that man and his whole family to Christ. And then him and his translator got back in the Jeep, went back to the site where Carl was just coming down from the platform, preaching the morning service, and he, he's still covered in spit. And he says, Carl, he says, Carl, I have been spat upon for the sake of Christ. And he goes, we must go back to the hotel immediately. And they drove back to the hotel. Carl's calling, what's going on? And he went to the, the, the room next to him, burst in the room, and went to the man on the floor and said, stand up in Jesus' name, you're healed. And the man jumped up and was completely healed. And then he looked at Carl and said, you see, Carl, sometimes it's better not to pray until faith comes. You know what faith, what that means when faith comes? When suddenly God makes it known to you, at this moment, you are anointed to be the answer to this problem. At this moment. <laughs> I remember I had a day like that. Carol Dawn will remember this. I got called to go visit Carol Dawn's father in the hospital. Who You remember this? He had fallen and had a hairline fracture down his leg. And he was in his 70s, and it, that wasn't supposed to heal. And I, I honestly, can I just be honest? I, I, you know, you guys know I'm, I'm just, Sonny and I, we tell all our business. <laughs> I really don't like going to the hospital. I'm so, it's so, so bad for a pastor to say that. I don't like going to the hospital to pray for folks. I don't like it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, that doesn't mean don't call me. Please call me because it's worse like if I, sh I shouldn't have said that because some of y'all are going to be dying. No, don't call him. He don't like coming here. No, I don't want that. I want you to call me. I want to I go. I just don't. I, I, I have to get over this internal thing inside. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, one morning I was meditating and I was reading Acts chapter 5 and uh, it was somewhere in Acts 5, I think it was Acts 5.30, there was a scripture that, that said, the Lord gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Yes. And I was feeling so tired and so broken down that morning, but I was meditating on that verse and the Lord said, son, today I'm going to give you an opportunity for obedience. I'm going to give you opportunities for obedience today and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit as you obey me. Yes. So if you would just take these opportunities for obedience and so after I finished that time of devotion, Carol Dawn called me and said, would you come to the hospital and pray for my father? He's fallen and has a fracture down his leg. And, and inside I'm like, can I just pray over the phone? Like inside, you know what I'm saying? Put the phone to his ear. Let me, let me pray for him. But then it came back, nope, this is an opportunity for obedience. So I said, I'm on the way. 
It was a 45-minute drive to the, to the hospital. And as I'm driving, I get a phone call, I see, and I see the name of the person who's calling me. Now, don't, don't get this wrong. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> this was a vampire calling me, okay? You know what I mean, Christian vampires? They just suck your blood. Yeah. Like, they, they suck the life out of you. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not talking about a needy person. You can be needy as long as you take the energy that I give you and use it. And get like, you can suck my blood as long as you keep it inside and gain life from it. But there's folks that will suck all of your blood out and then spit it out on the ground and walk away. They will not, they, they won't even digest it. It's like, you took an hour of my time and you're not, you're not even receiving a word that I'm saying. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying I don't like ministering to people. I, if, if somebody's willing to receive the encouragement, I'll talk to you for hours. You know, because if I can actually see, man, you took that and you made and you and you you improved the quality of your life and your walk with the Lord. Like you received that investment. But if somebody just this was a person you could talk to for three hours and they would be no better for it. They wouldn't believe a word you said. You spend the whole time trying to convince them God loves you. No, he doesn't. You know, that kind of person would just argue with you. To, well, if you don't believe that, then what are you calling me for? <laughs> what do you think I'm going to say? And when I saw that person's name, I thought, the devil is a liar, and I almost hit de- decline. But then it came back to me. This is an opportunity for obedience. Yeah, and then I, I had this wrestling. I, I let it ring a couple extra times because I thought, Lord, if I talk to this person, I'm not going to have any juice left to pray for Carol Dawn's daddy. Like, this is going to suck out all of my, I'm not going to have any life left. I'm going to stagger into the hospital, <laughs> you know. Please be healed. That's what I thought, you know, because this person's going to take all my life and not do nothing with it. And the Lord said, no, I give the Holy Spirit to those who obey me. So I answered and I talked to this person. And all of a sudden, there was this infusion of the Holy Spirit, this impartation of the Holy Spirit came in that conversation and everything changed. You could hear it in their voice. They were receiving everything. I I mean, it was like, and, and and they got free. And I talked to her for 40 minutes, 40 out of the 45 minutes of the drive. And by the time I pulled into the parking lot, she was going, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Oh, I'm so free. Thank you, Lord. And she was rejoicing in the Lord. And I said, I've never seen that happen before. (laughs) And when I hung up the phone, I realized I felt so powerful. I could feel the power of God tangibly in my body. And I walked into the lobby of the hospital, and I felt even more powerful. I said, oh, my goodness, Lord, what are you about to do? And I got on the elevator, and as the elevator was going up to the floor, I felt the power of God coming up through my feet, up through my legs. And I was trembling, and the, the power of God was coming up through my torso, and I'm, I'm trembling. And the people in the elevator are looking at me like, this dude is on drugs. <laughs> but I'm just tangibly feeling the power of God. And when the elevator opened, I stormed out of the elevator, and I stormed into the room, and I laid my hands on him. I said, be healed in Jesus' name. And he got up out of the bed, and he starts walking around the room. You remember that, Carol Dawn? And the doctor came in and said, what are you doing up? You got a broken leg. He said, it ain't broke no more. <laughs> And the next Sunday, he came walking into church like this. <laughs> you know, opportunities for obedience. Wow. None of us has the power to heal everybody, but all of us got the power to heal somebody. Yeah. It's simply about sensing when your moment comes, when your hour comes, when God wants to use you to bring breakthrough into somebody's life. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be listening? Are you going to be obedient? Opportunities for obedience. 
If you are an answer in search of a problem, you've got to be willing to go where the problem is. If you are a problem in search of an answer, you're always waiting for somebody to come to you. But if you are an answer in search of a problem, you're waiting for the Lord to send you to the problem. And Peter was used mightily because he was willing to go where the problem was. He was in Jerusalem and heard the problem was in Samaria, so he went to Samaria. He went back to Jerusalem and heard the problem was in Lydda, where this man Aeneas was, so he went to Lydda. And then all of a sudden in Joppa, they heard that Peter was in Lydda, and they sent for him, and they said, bring Peter immediately. Somebody just died. Now, they tell Peter, this woman, Tabitha, Dorcas just died in Joppa. Would you please come to Joppa? Now, Peter, at that moment, had a choice. He could have said, you know, people die all the time. I mean, this is just life. What am I supposed to do about it? Am I God? But at that moment, he sensed that God had anointed him to be the answer to this particular woman's problem. Maybe God hasn't called me to raise everybody from the dead, but at that moment, Peter sensed, I think God's called me to raise this woman from the dead. And I guarantee you, Peter was not sure. This is the key. Some of us will never allow God to use us because the prerequisite to obedience for you is surety. I just got to be sure. I got to be absolutely sure. God... God puts it on your heart, go pray for that person. But Lord, if this is you, and then you start laying out fleeces, <laughs> let that light blink three times. Lord, if this is you, let them come to me and ask me. Lord, if this is you, let a person with a white hat cross my path and step on my foot. And we, we're looking for surety. Wow. And what surety means is you're trying to escape the necessity of faith. Faith is the antithesis of surety. Faith is being sure of what you cannot see. Having the evidence of, it's, it's, uh, faith is, is uh, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, sorry, and the evidence of things not seen. And so walking in faith means I'm not sure in the natural, but I have confidence in the spiritual. And walking in faith does not mean that it's always going to turn out the way you see Walking in faith, can I tell you, the faith walk is dangerous, and there are some doozies. Sometimes you will get it wrong, and sometimes you will. <laughs> I was thinking about when I was a high school student, I wanted to go out on the street and witness, and I went out with one of my friends, and, and uh, I was so timid out there, but I was trying to talk to people, and everybody was just, you know, shushing me away and just like, get out of my face, you know? And so me and my friend, we sat down, we took hands, and we were praying together. We were trying to, like, stir ourselves up. And as we were praying, you know, I was getting more and more stirred up. And all of a sudden, I was feeling this stirring. And I was like, I'm ready. And I stood up, and I looked at this person, and I said, excuse me, ma'am, uh, sir, ma'am, sir. And I looked. The person had long hair, and I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. <laughs> and the person looked at me with disgust and walked off. <laughs> and I, I felt like such a failure. And I sat down, I was like, oh, all that anointing for nothing. You know, it, just, it just went nowhere. It did nothing. There was a season where I was so excited, I would pray for bent lampposts. Straighten in Jesus' name. They never straighten. 
You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm ready for God to do anything. Lord, send me to a dead person. Give me somebody with cancer, AIDS. Like, I'm, I'm asking God for diseases to heal. Like, that kind of crazy, just ridiculous faith. And you know what? A lot of times, nothing happened. Often because I was trying to make something happen instead of trying to discern what God had called me to do. Do you realize that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God himself ordained for you to walk in since before the world began. You don't have to convince God to give you good works. He created you for good works. He has a book of good works with your name on it that he has written in his book. You simply have to discern. This is the moment in which God is giving. There's a, a work written in the book under my name that God is calling me to at this moment. You don't have to create it. You just have to obey. And so Peter goes down to Joppa. Now, this is interesting for me. When he goes to Joppa and he goes into the house of this woman, Tabitha or Dorcas, and he sees that she's dead. They laid her in an upper room. She's laid on the bed, and they showed all of the tunics and everything that she had, had made in her lifetime, and they're weeping. And uh, Peter puts them all out of the room. All of the, all of the mourning family members, he puts them out of the room. I need you guys to go outside. And he closes the door, and he locks himself in with a woman. He had discerned that God had sent him there. But once he got there and faced the thing, he started to lose sight of his discernment. You know what I'm talking about? He had discerned that God had anointed him. You know, you find this all the time. Let's say you feel the anointing of the Spirit of God to pray for a sick person. As soon as you get in the room with that sick person, the anointing starts to lift. You start to get disconnected from... It's one thing to get the anointing in the prayer closet. It's another thing to get the anointing in the hospital room. It's one thing to feel the power of God when you're home by yourself. It's another thing to feel the power of God when you're talking to an unbeliever. And Peter, when he gets into the room and he's facing the problem, all of a sudden, he loses sight of the fact that his life is the answer. And he starts to feel disconnected from the anointing of the Spirit of God on his life. Peter starts to feel unqualified and unprepared and disempowered. Have you ever felt that in your life? Can I say to you that at the very moment at which you feel unqualified and ill-prepared, that is the very moment in which you are the most qualified and the most prepared. Because in the moment when you feel unqualified and ill-prepared, that is the moment in which you will be 100% dependent upon the Spirit of God. You see, if you go into a circumstance feeling personally qualified, you're going to depend on your personal qualifications. But if you go in the room feeling, God, I have no power to do this on my own. God, if you don't come through, I'm lost. At that moment, you will depend fully on the Spirit of God. Now, there's something that's actually not written in the text, but I know it happened. What happened was Peter put everybody out of the room, and then it said he knelt down to pray. But when he knelt down to pray, he knelt down to pray with his back to the woman. How do I know that? Because it said when he got up to pray, he turned toward the woman. He couldn't have turned toward her unless he had first turned away from her. Peter understood that he would be distracted if he was looking at the problem. You see, our problem is we're often praying towards the problem instead of praying towards the Lord. You got to turn your back on the problem so that you're not distracted by it. 
Listen, if the problem is your marriage, you can't turn towards your marriage and pray, oh God, fix this thing right here. Oh God, our marriage is so bad, would you fix this? And all you're seeing is how messed up your marriage is and you're praying and, and your eyes are filled with the vision of your messed up marriage. You gotta turn your back on that thing and forget about how messed up that thing is and turn your eyes on the Lord so that all you see is how glorious he is. All you see is how powerful he is. All you see is how mighty he is. And Peter turned his back on the problem until he had reconnected. And I believe it took him hours until he had reconnected. You know, Smith Wigglesworth did this. And Smith Wigglesworth was crazy. Smith Wigglesworth, do you know who he is? He had the most powerful healing ministry in the 20th century. But somebody, somebody died on his block. They didn't know that people were not allowed to die on his block. And Smith Wigglesworth, uninvited, barged into the house, walked into the room where the woman was, and locked the door. And her family members were outside the door, banging on the door, let us in. And he blocked them all out. And for six hours, he knelt down and prayed. For six hours, with the family members banging on the door. And after six hours, he felt the anointing and power of God come, and he jumped up and grabbed the woman and stood her up and said, live, and her eyes opened, and she started walking. <laughs> that's crazy, right? <laughs> that's, that's just, I mean, do you, know, do you know Wigglesworth's wife died, and he raised her, he brought her back, and you know what she told him? You got to let me go. <laughs> she said, you stop that. I'm with Jesus. Next time I go, you leave me with Jesus. I'm tired of you. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> she put a sign that said, do not resurrect. <laughs> Peter prayed until he reconnected with the revelation that he received apart from the problem. In the presence of the problem, he lost sight of the anointing that he had received apart from the problem. And he turned his back until he reconnected. We've got, this is so key. I want us to just pause here for a second. We've got to learn how to turn our back on our problems and connect with the Lord. Yeah. This, is, this, this is not just applied to praying for sick people. All you see is your financial difficulty. And your eyes are so filled with the vision of how much financial trouble you're in that you can't see anything but it. And now when you pray, you're praying towards your financial difficulty and inviting the Lord into your anxiety. The Lord will never join you in anxiety. He's inviting you to join him in peace. God, invade my anxiety. No, I'm not invading your anxiety. I ain't going in there. Mm -mm. I need you to join me yeah. in my peace. Yes. Come on. Turn your back on that thing. Yeah. Stop looking at it. Stop obsessing about it. Stop thinking about it all night long. Stop laying awake at night trying to strategize in your mind and figure out how to fix it. And just turn your back on it. Yes. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Yes. The purpose of prayer is to let everything else become a shadow in the light of him yes. so that all you see is Jesus. Yes. And all you hear is Jesus. Yes. All of a sudden in prayer, you come to the place where you're more aware of the power of Jesus than you are aware of the power of your problems. Yeah. When suddenly you magnify, that's what David said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Yeah. You know what it means to magnify the Lord? It means to take him to Kinko's and blow him up. 
You know what we tend to do? We take our problems to Kinko's and we blow them up. And we take God and we shrink him down. We try to make God (laughs) Ant-Man. Just shrink him down. And we take our problems and we blow them up. And then we pray to our little God about our big problems. Instead, we need to shrink our problems down and blow up God. You got to learn how to blow him up. You got to learn how to magnify the Lord. He's too small in your eyes. You need to make him bigger. You need to turn your back on stuff so that God can become bigger in your eyes. Anxiety is the result of having a God who's been shrunk down to where he's too small to fix your problem. That's what anxiety and fear is, is your God is too little. Wow. Come on. Amen. All right, we still got some more to talk about, so I'm going to go on from there. I just assume you got that. You got it, Briante? You got that point? You got it? I'll see you at night watch. <laughs> All right. So he turns his back and then he stands up and he faces her and he says, Tabitha, arise. Mm-hmm. Notice, here's what we like to do. We stand over the problem. We pray for the problem for hours. Oh God, touch this problem. Oh Lord, touch this problem. Oh God, help this problem. Oh Lord, touch. But, but when you're not touching the problem, you don't pray at all. Peter turns his back on the problem and just connects with the Lord. And then when he turns to the problem, he just says, get up. Wow. He doesn't waste his time addressing the problem. Wow. He spends his time engaging the Lord. Wow. And all of a sudden, her eyes open. He gives her his hand, lifts her up, makes sure she's all right. And then he calls everybody in, gives them to her alive, and he bounces. Hmm. Now he's staying in Joppa. And while he's in Joppa, we go to chapter 10. Meanwhile, in Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a centurion, which means that he's an overseer of a a troop of Roman soldiers. This centurion, the scripture says he was a devout man and a God-fearer. Now, we talked about this before, that in the synagogues in different places around the Greco-Roman Empire, there were three different types of worshipers that met in the synagogues. The first type were Hebrews. These were Hebrew-speaking Jews. The second type were Hellenists. These were Greek-speaking Jews. The third type were God-fearers. God-fearers were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel but were not willing to be circumcised. Because to be a, to become, you could become a proselyte to Israel, and you could become a Hellenist through circumcision as an adult with no anesthetic. So these guys were like, it's like, you want to get saved? And they're holding up a knife. So anybody who wants to get saved today, and they're standing at the altar with a knife, Lord, give me one more Sunday. <laughs> But these God-fearers, these Gentiles, they knew that the God of Israel was God. They came to the, the synagogue to worship him. And these guys like Cornelius that said he was a devout man, which meant that he was a prayer warrior. He sought the face of God earnestly. He didn't just come to the church. He sought the face of God. He didn't even know the Lord yet, but he knew how to pray. Isn't it interesting that some of us are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We don't know how to pray. This man didn't even know the Lord yet, but he knew how to pray. And as the scripture said, he was a generous giver. He gave generously. 
He was constantly blessing the synagogue and blessing the people, and he sent offerings to the poor of Jerusalem. And the, He knew that the God of Israel was God, and so he wanted to bless the God of Israel and bless the people of Israel. And one day, he was fasting and praying, and an angel appeared to him and said, send over to Joppa. First of all, the angel says, Cornelius, and he says, what is it? <laughs> that, that's kind of an interesting response. He's like, what is it? <laughs> it's like, what, what, really, what you're hearing in his voice when he says, what is it, is he's scared to death. Because if, it, if an angel appeared to you, in ancient Israel it was believed that if, if God or an angel appeared to you, it meant you were about to die. So an angel appears, Cornelius. He goes, what is it? Translation, what I do? Is everything okay? <laughs> you going to kill me? I mean, he just thought God was going to kill him. And the angel says, your giving and your prayers have come up before God as a memorial. Literally, he's saying, God can't get his mind off of your giving and your prayers. Your prayers are constantly resounding in his presence. And your offerings and your giving, your financial giving, it's become a sweet-smelling aroma in his presence. God is so pleased with your prayer and your giving. So here's what God wants to do for you. Send to Joppa. Inquire in the home of a man named Simon who's a tanner. His house is by the sea. This is crazy word of knowledge. The angel is giving him information in the spirit that there's no way he could have known in the natural. Inquire of a man there named Simon whose surname is Peter, and he'll tell you what you must do. Notice the angel does not preach the gospel to him. That God has delegated the task of preaching the gospel to us. Meaning if we don't preach the gospel, it won't be preached. Carl Hargistam told the story about the Lord telling him to get in a helicopter and fly up to this particular region in Ethiopia where there was a very violent group of tribesmen there. And every foreigner who had ever come to those tribesmen had immediately been killed by the tribes by the tribesmen. And God said, get in the helicopter and go up there right now and preach the gospel. And he thought that God was sending him to his death. And he grabbed a translator and didn't tell him where they were going. Yeah. <laughs> said, where we're going? You'll see. <laughs> when they fly up there and they get out of the helicopter, all the tribesmen come around and stand around them. And Carl starts preaching the gospel. And the translator is so scared that he pees on himself. And all of the men come, and they sit around. They start listening to Carl. And Carl is 15 minutes into a sermon, and all of a sudden, the chief of the tribe stood up and said, tell us about Jesus Christ. And the translator says, he says, tell us about Jesus Christ. And Carl says, how do you know about Jesus Christ? And the man said, three days ago, a shiny man appeared to me. And he said, in three days, a white man will fly down out of the sky, and he will tell you what you must do to be saved. And I asked the shiny man, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus Christ. And then he disappeared from my eyes. Cray cray. But you know what's even more cray cray to me? He has a visitation of Jesus himself, and he's in Jesus himself would not preach the gospel to him. Even Jesus himself says, I want you to be saved, but in order to be saved, you got to listen to Carl. He has delegated to us the privilege of preaching the gospel. Isn't that crazy? He has given to us the power to open up the gates of salvation. Isn't that crazy? To open up the well of salvation. Isn't that a crazy privilege? And Carl, when he heard that, he said, I stood there and I wept. He said that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would take time out of his busy schedule to announce my coming? 
Go to Joppa. Find this guy, Peter. He'll tell you what you must do. And then the angel disappears. Meanwhile, in Joppa, Peter wakes up in the morning. They go to the synagogue for the morning time where they, you know, they read from the law and they worship and they pray. And then he goes back to the house where he's staying. And he says, you know what? I'm about to go up to the roof to pray. So he goes up to the roof to pray. Then he gets up to the roof. He's like, I'm feeling hungry. And so he, you know, gets on the cell phone, probably sends a text. He's like, can y'all make me something to eat? And they're like, don't worry, we'll make you something to eat. He's like, well, let me know when it's done. I'm going to be up here praying on the roof. Puts down the phone, starts to pray again. As he's praying, all of a sudden, he slips into a trance. A trance. He's not sleeping, but he's not awake either. He's fully conscious, but he's not fully present in the body. He's seeing in the spirit now. A trance is a place in which what you see in the spirit becomes more real than what you see in the natural. And in the spirit, he sees a sheet being let down from heaven. The NKJV doesn't explain what's on the sheet. It just said there's many kinds of animals. What's implicit is that there's both clean and unclean animals on the sheet. And as the sheet is let down and it sets down on the earth before Peter, a voice comes from heaven and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter, you're hungry, right? I heard you say you're hungry. I saw the text message you just sent down to the kitchen. Well, you don't have to wait for them to prepare something for you. Peter, you see the sheet with all these animals? Get up, kill what you want. If you want some beef, there's a cow here. If you want some pork, there's a pig here. If you want some fish, there's a fish here. If you want some poultry, got some chickens and some turkeys here. So Peter, get out your knife and kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. He's talking to the Lord. (laughs) Nah, Lord. Nah. Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unclean or common. Why doesn't Peter say, I'll eat the clean animals, but not the unclean? Lord, get the pig out of there, but give me the cow. I'll eat some beef. Give me that chicken. Mm. (laughs) Put some hot sauce on it. Why doesn't Peter say, I'll eat the clean, but not the unclean? Because the clean and the unclean animals have mingled with one another. And Peter was still operating out of what's called the defilement by association paradigm. Which means that it was commonly believed that when something clean comes into contact with something unclean, the clean now becomes unclean. Peter says, I can't eat any of these animals now because you've mixed them, Lord. And the clean animals have become unclean now. And the voice speaks to him and says, what God has called clean, don't you dare call unclean. And then all of a sudden, the vision repeats itself. A sheet comes down from heaven. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter goes, not so, Lord. For I've never eaten anything unclean or common. And the voice says, what God has cleansed, do not call unclean. And then the vision happens again. The sheet comes down from heaven. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Sometimes the Lord has to tell us the same thing three times before we actually get it. Especially when what God is showing us is a radical departure from what we have believed our entire life. Listen to what God is saying to Peter. Don't you remember walking with Jesus? 
He touched unclean people all the time. Did he ever become unclean? Mm-mm. Jesus didn't operate out of the defilement by association paradigm. He operated out of the sanctification by association paradigm. Jesus didn't believe that anybody could ever make him unclean. He didn't care how unclean you were. He didn't care if you had, he didn't care if you had leprosy. He didn't care if you had a demon. He didn't care if you had all kind of sin on you. He didn't care what you were. He knew, touch me if you want. You will never soil me. I'm going to cleanse you. Peter, it's the opposite of what you think. The unclean animals have now become clean. You can eat them all now. I love this passage because now we could have ham sandwiches. (laughs) I I read this. I just cry when I read this. Thank you. As I eat my baby back ribs. Peter is now sitting there contemplating, what could this vision mean? The Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, there's men waiting for you downstairs. Meanwhile, downstairs, the servants of Cornelius had come up. They knock on the door. Simon the Tanner comes to the door and says, can I help you? He says, yes, you can help me. We're looking for this dude named Peter. And he goes, well, what you need him for? He says, we need him to come with us. He said, what you need him to come with you for? They see a Roman soldier standing there. Say, well, I don't think he's here. Do you see Peter? I don't see a Peter. I don't think Peter's here. What you need him for? They're thinking that Peter's in trouble. Here come the police. Somebody done called the police on Peter. (laughs) Now Peter's going to jail. Peter comes downstairs and says, I'm the guy you're looking for. They're like, oh, man, we're trying to protect you. We just told him you aren't here. Peter says, what are you sending for me for? They said, "Uh, yesterday, our master Cornelius, he had a vision. An angel appeared and said, your alms have gone up before God. Send for Peter. He'll tell you what you must do. Peter says, wow, that's crazy. Come on in the house. And Simon the Tanner's like, you're letting them in my house? Peter said, yeah, that's right. I'm letting them in your house. Gentiles come into the home of Jews for the first time. Already it's a radical departure from the norm. This isn't supposed to happen. Their house is supposed to be defiled. The next morning, they all leave for Caesarea. Isn't it interesting? Peter discovered he was an answer in Samaria, so he went to Samaria. He discovered he was an answer in Lydda, so he went to Lydda. He discovered he was an answer in Joppa, so he went to Joppa. Now he discovered he's he's an answer in Caesarea, so he journeys to Caesarea. He's used by God because he's willing to go wherever the Holy Spirit reveals to him. You're an answer here. He gets to Caesarea. And he meets Cornelius. Cornelius' house is packed with people. He invited all of his friends and family members. When Peter, when the man comes, we all got to be here to hear what this man has to say. God says he'll tell us what to do. Peter walks in and Cornelius falls at his feet and starts worshiping him. Peter immediately lifts him up and says, no, man, I'm just a dude like you. Mm -mm." And then Peter says, why have you called me? Cornelius tells the story and Peter says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But that in every place, wherever people call upon him, he has mercy on them. And then Peter starts to preach the gospel. What does he tell them? He tells them about Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. How he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed because God was with him. And he told them about the crucifixion of Jesus and how God raised him from the dead and said, we're all witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden as Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on the entire gathering. They all get filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Peter says, now it's time to baptize all of y'all. It's God did a marvelous thing here. The pattern that Peter preached in Acts 2.38 was believe, repent, be baptized, and then receive the Spirit. Here, 
Peter preaches, they believe, repent, they receive the Spirit, and then Peter says, now we're going to baptize them. God had to make it clear that he was not distinguishing between Jew and Gentile anymore. He made it clear by pouring out the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, Peter gets used by God to open the door of salvation to a whole group of people that never would have received the gospel without Peter. Why? Because he was willing to be an answer. You know, many of us, I need somebody to come start playing because I'm going to end this. You know, many of us, we come to church with all kinds of problems. And we are so conscious of our problems. So conscious of what's gone wrong in our lives that we would like God to make right on our behalf. So conscious of what's broken that we want God to mend. So conscious of what's fallen apart that we want God to put back together again. Most of us come to church feeling like Humpty Dumpty. We sat on a wall, we had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put you back together again, and so you tried Jesus because you heard that there's a God in Israel, and you heard that there's a God that can put you back together again when you've fallen apart, and there's nothing wrong with that. But for some of us, 20 years later, we're still coming to church going, God, Here's my problems. Would you be my answer? And you know what? That's fine. He'll continue to be your answer for as long as you bring him your problems. He'll continue to be your burden bearer for as long as you cast your burdens upon the Lord. But what God is looking for is maturity. And maturity comes when we transcend that place where we're living that arithmetic spirituality. Lord, here's my two plus two. Would you give me you're four. God is calling us into the place where we say, Lord, you've called me to be an answer. Would you show me the problem? Yes. Because many of you have not entered into your destiny yet, not because your problems haven't been solved yet, but because you have not yet found the problem to which you are an answer. You have not yet been applied to the right problem. You know, I cried out to the Lord just last week as I was listening to this, and I was saying, Lord, I really need the gift of administration because I'm not a good administrator, and if I was a better administrator, we would be better off, and I just need more administration. And God spoke to me and said, you're a master administrator, but your administrative gift has not yet been applied to the right problem. Stop saying that you're a problem. You're not a problem. You're an answer. And even the stuff that's gone wrong in your life, there's a reason why. Even the stuff that's fallen apart in your life, there's a reason. God's going to use all of that as part of the answer. You know, there's some stuff that God just won't heal you of. There's some stuff that God just won't fix. Why? Because if God were to fix it, do you realize that even Jesus Christ himself right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father, there's wounds from the cross that haven't healed. The nail, nail prints in his hands are still there. God said, I'm not going to heal you of that. I'm not going to take away the piercing from your side. I'm not going to take away the holes in your hands from the nails. I'm not going to take away the piercing in your feet. Do you know why I'm not taking it away? Because by your wounds, I'm going to heal a lot of folks. And I can't heal you yeah. of the answer. Yeah. Come on. I've made you an answer. God's calling us to a new place of availability to him. A new place of openness to the spirit of God. Instead of waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, I need answers. Waking up in the morning saying, Lord, make me an answer. Use my life for your glory. Show me where you would like to apply me as the answer to a problem. 
and then put it within me to pray and to seek and to reach and to trust and to believe. Lord, I'm willing. If you want to, if you, if you need me in Lydda, I'm going to Lydda. If you need me in Joppa, I'm going to Joppa. If you need me in Samaria, I'm going to Samaria. If you need me in Caesarea, I'm going to Caesarea. Maybe you've got a centurion in Caesarea that's waiting for me. God, I'm going. Maybe you've got an Aeneas in Lydda. Maybe you've got a Dorcas in Joppa. Maybe you've got a man at the gate, beautiful, who needs to walk. I love in the last chapter of Acts, in chapter 9, there's this dude, Ananias. He's in Damascus, and God speaks to him and says, go into the street called Straight. Inquire in this particular house for a man named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And Ananias says, Lord, I've heard of this dude. It's a bad dude. He's killed a lot of people. He's even here to imprison people who call upon your name. And Jesus said, go, for he's a chosen vessel unto me, for I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name. And Ananias goes into the room and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, has, whom you met on the way, has sent me to you that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he laid his hands on him. Scales fell from his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes him and he sets him on his way. Do you realize that the whole ministry of Saul of Tarsus depended upon this guy Ananias? Without an Ananias to start him on his way, he would still be in that room in Damascus right now. He would have died in that room. But there was an Ananias who was willing to go. There was an, and you never see Ananias again. You never hear from Ananias again. But God had a purpose and a plan for him. God had a moment. And you know, a lot of what you do may never be heard or never known, but it's registered in heaven. Yes. God knows. Yes. <laughs> God has so much more for you than you know. A destiny that is so much greater than you can perceive. It simply starts with the posture of your heart that says, Lord, I'm tired of coming to you as a, a set of problems looking for an answer. Make me an answer looking for a problem. Make me an answer looking for a problem. And God will use your life for his glory. Bow your heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father.